Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 through 20, pins the following words. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I, Paul, am an ambassador in chains." I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. You may be seated. Our study this morning will take a similar format to our study from last week. I want to spend some time this morning uh, discussing the purpose of the breastplate of righteousness I want to take some time and talk about the perils of not wearing the breastplate of righteousness. And then we'll conclude this morning uh, with a brief picture of the man or a woman who is wearing the breastplate of righteousness. Let's talk first about the purpose of the breastplate of righteousness. Last week we began by looking at the armor, the full armor of the effective Christian warrior. And we said just as a belt was instrumental in holding the rest of the soldier's armor in place, just as the belt was instrumental for giving the soldier a sense of inner strength, just as the belt helped the soldier have sure-footedness on difficult ground, and just as the belt helped the soldier to be free from entanglements, so the soldier's breastplate, the second piece of armor that Paul enumerates here in our text, plays a critical role in the battle that every Christian is engaged in. Now, a Roman soldier would have probably worn one of several types of breastplates. Uh, Some were fashioned out of thick leather uh, in which pieces of animal bone would have been sewn into. Uh, Some were chain mail. That's that's links of chain that that were knitted together, so to speak. Uh, And others were made of copper or bronze that were hammered into shape. They were a little more form-fitting for the individual. It wasn't just a a slip this on over you, but it literally fit the contours of your body. And depending upon your rank, depending on the number of years in service, your your breastplate could have looked different. Um, But in each case, the function of the breastplate was the same. And the function of the breastplate was primarily to protect the thorax, which is, as a matter of fact, the Greek word that is translated breastplate. It's put on the thorax of righteousness. Put on the thorax. The thorax is that part of your body from your neck to your thighs. And you ask yourself the question, well, why was a piece of armament that covered the thorax so important? And the answer to that question is because all your vital organs, with the exception of your brain, are housed in your thorax. Everything that you need to live, everything that you, that you need to survive is, is contained with the exception of your brain from your neck to your thighs. Think about the heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, the, the, the digestive tract. Uh, it all resides in your thorax. 
Keep in mind that a wounded soldier in Paul's day didn't have the access to the advanced medical treatment that we have today. Uh, We can become very seriously injured, and because of God's graciousness in the advancement of medical attention, uh, we can be healed at times. We can be taken care of at times. But in Paul's day, injury to the thorax, that area between the neck and the thighs, it would have certainly taken a soldier off the battlefield, and in many cases it would have taken a soldier's life. So a warrior without a breastplate or a warrior without his thorax on would have been considered naked for battle. No no soldier would have walked into or engaged in any kind of battle without his breastplate firmly affixed. He would have certainly been exposed to every thrust of his enemy's sword and spear and every arrow from his enemy's quiver if he were to march into battle without his thorax or without his breastplate firmly affixed. It's important to note that in Jewish culture, emotions and feelings were oftentimes referred to in light of vital organs. Think about that for a minute. Uh, Emotions, feelings being referred to or being described in terms of vital organs. Let me show it to you in a couple of places here. Keep your, keep your finger there in Ephesians chapter 6 and turn over to Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23, 15 and 16. Proverbs 23, 15 and 16. Again, what I want to show you here is that in Jewish culture, across both Testaments, Old Testament and New Testament, emotions and feelings were oftentimes referred to or described in terms of our vital organs. Why is Solomon speaking here in Proverbs 23? Verse 15 says, My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. Boy, is that not the plea of every parent to their children or of their children? Here's what I want you to look at for just a moment. Your your, uh, translation may be a little bit different, but where Solomon writes, my inmost being, uh, raise your hand if your Bible has a subscript right after inmost being or if there is an asterisk right after inmost being. Let me see your hand. If some sort of marking, okay, when you have some sort of marking, means look down at the bottom of the page there in your Bible. And what do you see right there by that subscript or by that asterisk? You'll probably see that it says literally the kidneys. So literally what Solomon is saying here, he's saying, my son, if your heart is wise, my heart will too be glad. My kidneys will exult when your lips speak what is right. It's literally what the Hebrew text reads there. used figuratively to refer to the mind or the inner being. Likewise, uh, turn over to Matthew 9.36. This is probably a bit more of a familiar text to you. I want to show it to you one more time. Matthew 9.36. Again, we're just making the point here. Jewish culture, emotions and feelings oftentimes referred to or described in terms of vital organs. We see Solomon talking about his kidneys will exult meaning his inmost being, all of me, who I am, will be, be glad. And here in Matthew 9.36, Matthew writes that when Jesus looked out over the Jewish crowd, when he looked out over the mass of humanity, 
Matthew writes that he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, that word translated compassion there, splanknizomai, it's one of those fun words to say in the Greek, but it literally means to have a turning or to have a wrenching in your bowels. And so when we read Matthew 9.36, when Jesus looked out over the, the mass of humanity, his bowels, literally his insides, were turned upside down, translated compassion. Compassion. So we see emotions and feelings being referred to in terms of vital organs. Now, let me connect those dots for you, just, just in case we're saying, okay, how does that uh, have anything to do with the text that's in front of us? Let me connect the dots for you here to our text. One of the most important jobs of the soldier's breastplate was to protect his heart. Matter of fact, when you see the word heart, cardia, oftentimes in your Bible, sometimes it does mean this piece of meat inside of our chest that beats. But more times than not, when we see the Greek word cardia translated heart, it's speaking about the inner man, speaking about who you are, speaking about your mind. It's your heart that determines who you are. That's why David prayed this, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Matthew reminds us where your heart is. There your treasure will be also. Luke, the doctor, tells us out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of an overflow of who you are, your mouth will speak. We've talked often, even in our study of Ephesians, that your, that your mouth is a barometer to your heart. And Solomon encourages us saying, keep your heart with all vigilance, vigilance, for from it flow the springs of Life. You see, your heart is who you are, and the primary function of the thorax, the primary function of the breastplate for the soldier was to guard or protect his heart. To guard or protect his heart. See, if the heart serves as the seat of your emotions, if the heart serves as, as the seat of your feelings, your will, who you are, then it's no wonder that Satan, our crafty, cunning, evil, formidable foe, will want to attack such a vital target as your heart. That's why Solomon says, keep watch over your heart. Keep vigilant watch over your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. One of the fiery arrows that Satan frequently fires into the hearts of believers, and I think this is the point of the text this morning, is condemnation. When you think about breastplate of righteousness, think condemnation is the weapon of your foe. The breastplate or the thorax is a protection against the enemy's fiery darts of condemnation which we all struggle with at times. We, we know that in Christ we've been released from condemnation, right? Romans 8, 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. But oftentimes, though we, though we understand, at least in our minds, mentally, the transaction that took place at our conversion and that we've been freed from condemnation, oftentimes when we sin as Christians, we turn right back around, put the cuffs right back on our wrists, walk right back in the jail cell, and shut the door. We self-condemn. We condemn ourselves, And Satan, our cunning, crafty adversary, knows that. And it's an often used weapon of his, aimed at the heart of believers. Satan is wise. 
And he knows that the individual who is genuinely born again, but yet ravaged with guilt and condemnation will be of little threat and little effect on the battlefield of the Christian life. You see, guilt and condemnation, friends, make the heart sick. Guilt and condemnation make the heart sick. Makes the believer feel discouraged, despondent, dejected, and downcast. And it's a powerful weapon used by our adversary to corrupt our fellowship with God. But praise be to God that he has not left us here defenseless against Satan's condemning attacks. He's given us a weapon. The breastplate of righteousness, write this down if you're taking notes, serves as the heart protector for the Christian. The heart protector for the Christian against those fiery darts of condemnation. Well, let's talk about the meaning of righteousness in the text here. Just as uh, it was important for us to define truth last week, it's also important for us to define righteousness in our text for this morning. So the question is, what is Paul referring to when he instructs us to stand and to put on the breastplate of righteousness? Three points on your outline there. A, if you're taking notes, is this. Paul is not referring, Paul is not referring to self-righteousness. Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. We know that he is not referring to self-righteousness. Because self-righteousness offers no protection. As a matter of fact, self-righteousness will leave you feeling condemned. If you try to garner righteousness on your own, it will leave you feeling guilty, shameful, and condemned. Self-righteousness can't resist the accusations of conscience. Self-righteousness can't keep out the whispers of despondency. Self-righteousness can't withstand the power of temptation or the assaults of Satan. But unfortunately, many Christians who know that God did not save them on the basis of their own merits sinfully revert back to clothing themselves with their own accomplishments in an effort to please God. That's why Paul wrote this to to Titus, Titus 3.5. He said, He, God, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, far from protecting a believer, a cloak of righteousness gives Satan a ready-made weapon to stick in your thorax, right there in the heart. Self-righteousness will surely keep a believer out of the fellowship of God, doesn't separate him from God if if he's rightly uh, connected to, if he's truly in union with Christ. Uh, Paul said, For I am convinced that neither life uh, nor death nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other thing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so our... Our reverting back to, at times, in the Christian life, to to self-righteousness does not sever, in any way, shape, or form, our right relationship with God given to us, affirmed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But it certainly does break fellowship. It certainly does break fellowship. Our own righteousness brings us no favor with God and it offers no protection from Satan. Remember Paul in his testimony uh, in Philippians chapter 3, he said this of himself, this is a familiar text probably uh, to you. He said, I count everything a loss or I count everything rubbish or dung because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things. 
And he said, I want to be found in Christ. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes by faith, the righteousness that depends on faith. Our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. It's Isaiah 64, 6. But when we come to Christ, uh, when we come to know Christ personally, uh, then we can sing this confession. Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless I look to you, look to thee for, for grace. Foul I to the mountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Realize I have nothing to offer. All of my righteousness, all of my self-righteousness is like filthy rags. Paul said, I didn't want that kind of righteousness. It offers no protection. No protection from a thrice holy God and no protection from our adversary. But there are undoubtedly some here this morning who are wearing the breastplate of their own self-righteousness. In a room this size, it's inevitable. But there are some here who are trusting in their own merits, trusting in their own goodness, trusting in their own accomplishments to try to please a holy God. Friends, if that rightly describes your life, that's futile. It's futile. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ savingly, trying to barter with God for his righteousness on the basis of your own goodness and on the basis of your own merit is like handing God a check that is connected to a bank account that has a zero balance. It's useless. It's worthless. It's like filthy rags. The 17th century Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks, if you ever run across something that Brooks has written, I would encourage you to gobble it up. Read discerningly, but gobble it up. This is what Thomas Brooks said. He said, Till men have faith in Christ alone, their best services are but glorious sins. Till men be found in Christ alone, saved in Christ alone, their their most wonderful actions are only glorious sins. See, self-righteousness, it's not a suitable armor to stand before Satan, but neither is it a suitable armor to stand before a thrice holy God. There are two things that all men need without exception. All men need peace with God. Romans 5.1, right? Therefore, we are justified by faith, so we have peace with God. All men need peace with God, and then all men need the peace of God. That's Philippians 4.7, Right? And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the two come together, friends. You never have the peace of God until you first have peace with God. All men need both without exception. Paul is not talking about self-righteousness here in our text. He's not saying, put on your own merits, put on your own goodness, put on your own achievement. Be there on your outline. I don't think Paul is primarily referring either to our positional righteousness. While positional, or uh, you may have heard it referred to in terms of imputed righteousness, that righteousness that we are granted at salvation by God, Christ's righteousness given to us, applied to our otherwise bankrupt account, though it is the crux of our salvation, I don't think that's what Paul is primarily emphasizing here in Ephesians 6.14. Now, 
Let me rewind just a little bit. Positional or imputed righteousness. What is that? I don't think that's what Paul's primarily referring to here, but I think we need to take up the issue and answer the question, what is it? Simply stated, positional righteousness is the righteousness that God grants us at conversion. We're born into this world utterly sinful, utterly depraved, and therefore bankrupt of any righteousness of our own. If we are to gain righteousness, it must be imputed to our account. It must be granted to us. Prior to salvation, Paul describes us like this in Romans chapter 3. He says, none are righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, for we've all turned aside. When you see all in Scripture, usually, not always, but it means all collectively. Such is the case here. We've all turned aside. Together we have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But when a person repents, that is, turns from their vain, sinful, self-trusting to Jesus Christ, all of Jesus Christ's righteous merit is given or imputed to that individual's account. Paul speaks of this transaction, probably one of my favorite verses in the entirety of the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul speaks about this transaction. As God made him, speaking about Jesus, who knew no sin, he was sinless, he was perfect, without blemish, without spot, all the things that we are now in Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, so that being found in him, we, as a result, might become the righteousness of God. That's imputed righteousness or positional righteousness. That's the gospel in one verse, by the way. If you want to share the gospel with some friends, if you want to share the gospel with some family members, if you want to share the gospel with some co-workers, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the gospel in one verse. One verse evangelism. Jesus takes and pays for our sin in full on the cross and in exchange we're given his righteous record that we might stand blameless and without accusation before God. Now, Get that, without accusation before God, that's the breastplate of righteousness. Okay? From a positional standpoint. I think what Paul is referring to here primarily, to see on your outline, is to our practical righteousness. Now having said that, just like I said that uh, the objective revealed truth of God, the Word of God, your Bible, we talked about it last week, Just as truthfulness of character, just as integrity of character in us does not come apart from the objective, revealed truth of God, neither does practical righteousness take place in our lives apart from God's imputed righteousness to our account. In other words, a person can never act practically righteous until they have been made positionally righteous. That's why we expect sinners to act like sinners. They can do no other without a new heart, uh, with that heart of stone there in their chest, without a heart of flesh, without the, 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 the promised Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come, Ephesians 1.13. Apart from those things, a person can act no different because we act in accordance with our nature, Right? And at conversion, we're given a new nature. Now, we still reside in, we still live in a sinful flesh, do we not? We do. And we will, we call this our earth suit, we'll reside in this sinful earth suit 
until the day that we stand before God in glory, till the day that we die or until Jesus comes and takes us home. We will reside in this sinful flesh, right? But with new hardware on the inside, a new nature. That's why Peter tells us that we're partakers of the divine nature. Positionally, if we know Christ, perfect. Positionally, if we know Christ, holy. Positionally, if we know Christ, blameless. Positionally, if we know Christ, without fault and without accusation. At the same time, we're practically being made holy. We're practically growing in sinning less. Talked a few weeks back about the fact that a a sinner at conversion does not become sinless, but we should be growing in sinning less. And if we're not growing in sinning less, then we need to ask some questions about the validity of our conversion. I think what Paul's referring to here in the text, when he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, he's certainly not talking about self-righteousness, your own merit, your own accomplishments, your own deeds. And I don't think that he's primarily talking about our positional righteousness, although that is the crux, the foundation of our salvation. I think what Paul is getting at here in Ephesians 6.14b is that practical righteousness. Or stated differently, the believer's obedience. To put on the breastplate of righteousness, then, is to live in daily, moment-by-moment obedience to our Heavenly Father, not to garner His acceptance, but because we already have it. If we get that equation mixed up, uh, we, we will we'll seek a vain self-righteousness. Uh, we, will, we will live in at least a low-grade state of self-condemnation, just kind of bouncing through the Christian life, br- bruised and abused by the evil one. And that's not to say that, that we're victims here and that we have no, uh, no ability to stand. We do. As a matter of fact, we have the obligation to stand. And God's given us all the, the equipment. He's outfitted us with everything that we need to obey that very command. So he tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness in a practical sense. In other words, what God has worked in you now, Paul told us in Philippians, you have the responsibility to be working out. You've been saved, truly converted, born again, positionally righteous. Now, Satan is going to hurl those fiery darts of accusation at you. He's going to tell you you're not good enough. You can't measure up. You need to work a little harder, try a little harder. If God's going to accept you, you've got to pull up your own bootstraps. And that's what Satan tells you. And so you've got to put the breastplate of righteousness on, which comes in the way of holy living or obedience, because the obedient Christian does not leave himself open and vulnerable to the accusations of the evil one. Now, The fact that we're instructed to put on the breastplate of righteousness, it implies that we don't automatically wear it all the time, even as Christians, okay? We need to wake up every morning and put on the breastplate of righteousness. We've got to be reminding ourselves of the truth. You see, God's armor is not a discombobulated set of equipment. It all works together cohesively as a whole. That's why Paul started with the belt of truth. We start with the belt of truth, which produces in us, God's objective revealed truth produces in us a character or a quality of truthfulness, integrity. Integrity before God, integrity before a lost and dying world. Now, because we know that one of Satan's 
uh, fiery darts is accusation aimed right at the heart of a Christian. We're told to wake up every morning and to put on the breastplate of righteousness. In other words, I have to preach the gospel to myself, remind myself who I am in Christ, what Jesus Christ has procured and secured for me by means of his sinless life, victorious death, and resurrection. That's what's been given to me. That is impenetrable. But I must accompany that positional righteous standing with a daily obedience in living. Otherwise, I'm leaving myself open to the fiery darts of the evil one. We're instructed to put on the breastplate of righteousness. It implies that we don't automatically wear it all the time. Matter of fact, the Greek verb there probably translated put on in your Bible. It's in duo. It's in the middle voice, and you say, well, that's great. What does it mean? Well, that just means uh, that the, the subject of the verb is acting in relation to themselves. In other words, you, you, I, you have the responsibility to put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's how we know, by the way, that Paul's not talking about our positional righteousness here because that's a work of God holy. We have nothing to do with that. God makes us righteous in Christ. He imputes righteousness to our otherwise bankrupt account. We have nothing to do with that. He changes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. But here, the verb put on, being in the middle voice, that is you, that is me. The subject of the verb has the responsibility to do the action. God's given us all the grace that we need. We can't do it on our own, and we shouldn't try. God's outfitted us with all the grace that we need to be obedient to every command that he has called us to obey. So putting on the breastplate of righteousness requires action on our part. Requires action on our part. Again, we're called to work out what God has already worked in us. Obedience is the product of a changed heart. See, righteousness here is the Christian's breastplate. The breastplate secures the vitals, it shelters the heart. Our positional righteousness in Christ, it serves as the breastplate to protect us from all of God's divine wrath. Let me rewind that statement. Positional righteousness protects us from God's divine wrath. He saved us in Christ. Now I'm found in Christ. Christ covers me. He is my breastplate, positionally. But practically, I'm to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Protects my heart and your heart from Satan's accusations and condemnation that would quickly disorient and disable us in the battle. Now, with that settled, answering the question, what does Paul mean when he says righteousness? He's talking about our obedience. Okay? Friends, we're imperfect in every way. As a matter of fact, James tells us we all stumble in many ways. We woke up this morning, and, and we probably have not made it here without sin. Uh, we probably won't walk out the doors this morning without sin. And we'll get in our cars, and we'll probably sin. And we'll go home, and we'll sin. And we should be growing and sinning less, but we live in this sinful, fallen flesh. Okay? So we know that righteousness is our obedience. I'm to be growing and sinning less, not leaving myself open to the accusations of Satan. Now, Let me say a few things here about the perils of a person who does not wear the breastplate of righteousness. In other words, uh, what's the result of? What's the result of not wearing the breastplate of obedience? Not growing in day-by-day, moment-by-moment obedience to the Lord. 
Well, if you're not wearing the breastplate of righteousness, number one in your outline is this, you'll become disheartened and your joy will wane. You'll become disheartened in the Christian life and your joy will wane. Friends, sin sucks the life out of you. It sucks you dry. It promises fulfillment and then leaves you empty-handed and empty-hearted every single time without exception. It promises to give, but it always takes away. Remember, John 10.10, the thief comes only to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. But I, Jesus said, have come that you may have life and have it abundantly or have it to the full. Sin promises to fulfill, but it always leaves you empty-handed and empty-hearted. It always leaves you disappointed. It always leaves you discouraged. Matter of fact, all all disappointment, all discouragement, all lack of joy in our lives can be traced back to some root of sin. Some root of sin in our hearts. After David committed adultery with Bathsheba and he ordered the death of her husband Uriah, he had no peace, right? Right? He had no peace. That's why Psalm 51.12 includes the plea from David, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. See, sin robs you of joy. It promises life, but it sucks it right out of you. It promises you joy, but kicks you while you're down. Disobedience in the Christian life, doesn't rob us of our salvation if we truly have it, but it certainly robs us of salvation's joy. Now, let me qualify that statement and say, if there is not a pattern of growing obedience in our lives, we're perfect. James, we all stumble in many ways, but if there is not a pattern of growing obedience in our life, then we need to ask a whole other set of questions. While disobedience doesn't rob us of our salvation, it certainly robs us of salvation's joy. In other words, lack of obedience brings lack of joy. The only joyful Christian is the obedient Christian. The only obedient, or the only joyful Christian, rather, is the obedient Christian. If you're not wearing the breastplate of righteousness, you'll lack, you'll lack joy in your life. Number two, you'll lack an abiding assurance of God's love. Not only will you become disheartened and your joy will wane, but you'll lack an abiding assurance of God's love. You see, one of the places that Satan loves to meddle is in the believer's assurance of his or her salvation. See, there are many Christians, and maybe I'll describe you here in just a brief moment, but there are many Christians who feel unworthy before God. They feel like a dismal failure at the Christian life. And that if God, if he hasn't already, will sooner or later wash his hands of interest in them. You see, somewhere along the line, we've lost our zeal. We've lost the excitement that comes along with being a new Christian. When we were once filled with the reality of God's love for us in Christ, it seems now that we're more aware of our failures than we are of his mercy and of his grace. We begin to doubt God's presence. We question whether he's really for us, and we wonder if his forgiveness is enough for us. You see this, friends? This is the attack of the enemy, and it's one of his favorites. If you don't have the breastplate of righteousness on, then you have no protection for your heart. How do you answer such an attack? You answer it by remembering that you already wear the breastplate of righteousness. That's positional. In other words, you don't stand on your own merits, and you never did. 
You never had anything worthwhile in yourself to offer to God, nothing commendable in yourself to offer to God. You gave all that up when you came to Christ, all the vain self-striving you turned from when you turned to Christ, all the self-trust you turned from when you turned to Christ. You quit trying to be good enough to please God. You came to God, the Father, on the infinite merits of His Son who died for you. It's not your own miserable, tattered righteousness that covers your heart, but it's the solid, impenetrable righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers your heart. And this righteousness is durable enough to deflect any of Satan's arrows of accusation. There's a song that I like uh, by two, two gentlemen, Shane and Shane. And the song title is Embracing Accusation. And, and in, in the song, Shane and Shane talk about the fact that they feel like throughout the Christian life that the devil is, is just condemning, relentlessly condemning, relentlessly uh, bringing guilt before us. And there's a point in the song uh, where they say this, Oh, the devil's singing over me, the age-old song that I'm cursed and gone astray. You ever feel that way? You ever feel that way, that age-old song that I'm cursed and gone astray? But then they come back and they say this line, He sings the first verse so conveniently, but he's forgotten the refrain, Jesus saves. Remember last week when I asked you the question, does Satan ever tell the truth? He most certainly does. Friends, you are unworthy in and of yourself, and so am I. But that's only the first part of the gospel. But if you listen to him, he will preach that first half of the gospel to you all day long until you're blue in the face. And you have to remember in that moment that he's forgotten the refrain. There's a whole nother side of the gospel, and that's that Jesus saves. That's your breastplate of righteousness. And an obedient Christian life gives evidence to that positional righteousness. Number three, if you don't have the breastplate of righteousness on, you'll be less fruitful both in this life and the life to come. Failure to be armed with practical obedience, failure to be armed with practical righteousness, it'll cause fruitlessness. The disobedient Christian is unproductive in the things of the Lord. I mean, here's the bottom line. Any time that we spend meddling in sin is time that we're not spending glorifying the King of Kings. Not only does it make us unproductive this side of eternity, but it it means a loss of reward, potentially, that side of eternity. And Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, probably a familiar text. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, haul, wood, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. There's going to be a day that we stand before God. He's going to test our work. We'll receive reward accordingly. Number four, if you don't have the breastplate of righteousness on, you'll mar your gospel witness. Again, James tells us, James 3, 2, if you want to write the reference down, that we all stumble in many ways. Amen or oh me. We're great sinners saved by a greater Savior. But one of the most unattractive things to the lost world is when a professing Christian is living a life that is marked by disobedience and unholiness. 
It's so distasteful to the lost world around us. How, how can we point people to the matchless grace of Jesus if we're constantly meddling in the affairs of this world and the, the sin of the flesh? We'll mar our gospel witness. Number five, if your breastplate is not firmly intact, you'll be tempted to think too lightly of your sin. Here's what I mean by that. Satan usually downplays sin, and one of his attacks is to cause you to think that you are good enough in and of yourself. That's self-righteousness to make it to heaven. You'll, you'll, you'll de-emphasize your own sinfulness and begin to think that you're really okay. Satan would love to, th- to cause you to think that way. As a matter of fact, the road to hell is paved with such lies. You're good enough. Number six, you'll lack consistency and fervency in your prayers. Satan would love to accuse us. He would love to tell us that your sinfulness keeps you from God, that your, that your sinfulness keeps his ear from wanting to listen to you. If we feel guilty and ashamed, it oftentimes results in a hesitation to approach God. And Satan will be quick to remind you, yes, you are unfit to approach him. But we must remind him he's forgotten the refrain. Number seven, you'll fail to rightfully honor and glorify God, which is just kind of the culmination of one through six. And the list could grow. I mean, this is not exhausted by any means. We're just trying to think through some of the practical implications of, of not walking in practical holiness. If you're not walking in obedience, growing in that daily, Uh, Here are the implications. You'll be disheartened. You'll lack joy. Joy comes with obedience. You'll lack an abiding assurance of God's love. You'll be less fruitful both here and there. You'll mar your gospel witness. You'll be tempted to think too lightly about your sin. You'll lack consistency and fervency in your prayer because you'll think that God doesn't want to listen to you. And ultimately, you'll just fail to rightfully honor and glorify God as you should. Now, having said all that, aren't we thankful that Jesus has secured such a salvation for us. Aren't we thankful that there is grace great enough for the greatest sinner? Because we are the chief. We are the chief. Well, what's a picture of a person with a solid breastplate? Let me just give these to you. They're relatively easy to understand without any commentary. Here's the picture of a person that has a solid breastplate of righteousness intact. They're humbled by the gospel, and they're thankful for grace. They're not relying on themselves. They're not relying on their own goodness or their own merit. They're humbled by the fact that God would save a sinner like me. And the the more they walk with God, the greater that humility grows. The more thankful they become. Number two, it's a picture of a person that's growing in purity and holiness. A person with a solid breastplate of righteousness on is growing in practical daily obedience, purity, and holiness. Imperfect, you better believe it. But growing, yes, unmistakably. And then third and lastly, growing in godly courage for the battle. Satan would just love to keep you uh, bouncing through the Christian life with a low-grade discouragement, a low-grade frustration, a low-grade sense of being disheartened. Uh, Because if you are, 
I can tell you where your eyes will be, friends. They'll be on you, and they'll be on me. Instead of fixing those eyes firmly and squarely upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for me. One of the old Puritans said this. It was Robert Murray McShane, and he said, For every look you take at yourself, take ten long stares at Christ. For every look that you take of yourself, when you're, when you're encouraged by the evil one uh, to, to self-condemn, stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at your record. Stop looking at your merit. What you say is, I died, but I live in Christ. And look at him. Fix your eyes on him. When we have the breastplate of righteousness on, we will live lives that are clean and pure and that bring honor and glory to the Lord. When we live out that practical righteousness day by day, the enemy will find that his temptations will have no power over us. And we must remember that these pieces of armor go hand in hand. The belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, they're essential pieces of the whole armor of God. And when they're in place... We're on our way to becoming the believer who's able to withstand in the evil day and to honor and glorify God. 